So as Dave Grohl would say, as as Dave Grohl, and it's say. it's appropriate to where I'm going to go with this. Yes. I've got another confession to make. Yes. So so. Oh. A while ago in the car, the last preset we used to have 1033 or 1035 1033 out of New York, the Edge. And oh. it I don't know if it's gone off the air, if it's just whatever. Anyway. So I set a couple of weeks back, about a month back down, I set the preset to key 107. Well, on purpose. <laughs> on purpose, yes. Okay. And I said to Kel the other day, I'm actually really enjoying having Q107 as one of the presets because when I do a lot of driving, right? Like I spend a lot of time in the car driving back and forth to Forty Creek, Grimsby or wherever. Yeah. Up to the cottage. So so I said to Kel, I'm really enjoying having that as a preset. And she said, yeah, that's because Q107's caught up to you. And I'm like, okay. Interesting. Interesting. I or said, I don't you've know if it's necessarily... Or that I've caught up with it, but yeah. And so what I what I found was really interesting. I was talking to somebody about this later. Yeah. Afterwards, was um, it's interesting how because I did say to her, I mean, some of the music I play on Q, I'm still not like not a big fan of, right? Okay. But uh, you know, it's like if I think about now to thirty years ago, Nirvana's never mind. Never mind, you know, 30 plus years ago. Yeah. Nirvana's Nevermind is still relevant today. I mean, it's not for me earth shattering like it was in 91. But I mean, it's still relevant to not just me, to, but to many people. It's played on everything, right? Yeah. On stage. Um, go back, you know, if I was to look at then, you know, when I was in, you know, growing up in the 80s, if, if I was to look back 30 years before that, the music from the 50s wasn't relevant to my... Sure. To my age, right? In my my you know teen years, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so it's really interesting to think of, and this is where I was talking about even with with my kids, talk, not talking with my kids, but talking to this person about my kids. You know, we've had fifty years, and I know before you know when, when we were talking classical and music, you know, wasn't necessarily evolving like it does today. We've had fifty years of almost shared music experience that's as relevant today as it was 30 40 and even up to 50 years ago yeah. so you know and, and you have you have you know the accessibility we've talked about this so many times on the podcast about you know um streaming services right yeah. and the ability for kids to discover music that they wouldn't have necessarily discovered i mean i guess we, we would have picked up you know our parents album to put them on but again it wasn't really as relevant to us you know yeah. in our teen years as it is to kids that are potentially, you know, in their twenties or teens today. And, and you also had, um, we we're discussing, we also had things like the Wii and rock band, right. Where kids discovered eighties music through playing rock band on their Wii devices or whatever device That's they have right. to play it. Yeah. On, right. So it's really interesting that, you know, Guitar you have, really from teens all the way up to our age and we we have this shared experience of music again there's different genres and, and people like different you know different types of music as it spins off in sure. different directions but generally speaking when it comes to rock and roll yeah and other genres you could say the same for hip-hop and and others you know there is that shared experience i don't know how many times i can use the word shared experience in a pre-show yeah. but 
Um, there is that 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 uh, is very different from us to our parents' age. So that was my profound pre-show. Yeah, no, probably I, not very profound, but I, <laughs> I totally understand. I'm looking for the name of these Marvel movies uh, because the the music from uh, from these movies uh, is the music that I would listen to. So, Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, just amazing music yeah. on all three of their movies. Yeah. And whenever something will come on, I'll tell Cosmic, oh, that's so-and-so, you know. Um, and a, f- a couple of years ago, I think after the first Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, I noticed on one of his playlists were songs that came from that mm. movie. So, yeah, kids are, are discovering our music, or our kids are discovering the music that we grew up with yeah. uh, in, in different areas. Yeah. Anyway, I was, I just thought that was fascinating. And, and, and again, so that, that, you know, a lot of that came out of the fact that, you know, I've, I put on Q107 now, and again, there's music that I'm not a big fan of. Sure. Um, but they play a lot of stuff and, and, you know, I wouldn't necessarily listen. I wouldn't necessarily go to Apple music and throw on Boston. Although I might, but because it's a classic album or ELO, but yeah. you know, there's 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 stuff that they're playing from back then that I love that I wouldn't yeah. necessarily immediately go to to listen to. So I'll, you know, yeah. driving along, get sick of a song on a different station, click. Oh, yeah, hey, cool! I haven't heard this in a long time, and grooving out to you know my childhood. Yeah, no, I totally get it, and and uh, similar to um, to that, um, you know, ninety seven three boom plays music that I would hear on CFTR six eighty. Yeah. And that was a top 40 station. Um, but I'm talking about good music. And that's the pre-show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Greg. <laughs> Before we end the pre-show, I see something behind you that I don't think we can. Tina Turner passed away last, I want to say last week. We're recording this on the 29th. And um, when when she passed away, we have a cousin's chat, and a lot of our cousins live in England. And I was shocked at how many, you know, here I am thinking Tina Turner, you know, just me, American. And so many people in England were like, oh, my God, she was the best, the queen of rock. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know she was huge there. Little did I realize she was bigger there than she ever was here. And she was uh, a citizen of Switzerland. Um, You know, lived in Germany, lived in England. I want to say France, but I might be wrong there. Um, But yeah, just just great music. And listen, I I don't know how much justice I can do. So I, I will direct everybody to... One of the music podcasts that we talk often on this show is <clears throat> the Rolling Stone podcast. Go take a listen to that and their, um, their Tina Turner episode that came on uh, that came out last week. Just phenomenal. Um, what a voice! Just just amazing. But one of the interesting things 
that I discovered about uh, this particular album, Private Dancer. Um, the song, Private Dancer, do you know who wrote it? You'll never guess. Like, zero guesses. Mm. I feel like I've done this, but I can't think of it offhand. Mark Knopfler. I, th I think I knew that. Yeah. And every time I listen to it now, I think, okay, how would Mark sing it with his very distinctive <laughs> voice as well? <laughs> you know, but um, yeah. apparently people like uh, the Rolling Stones and David Bowie um, really helped uh, Tina Turner out when she was trying to uh, create for herself a, a solo career at the age of 44 years old um she was huge uh as part of um ike and tina turner uh she many people know the story if, if not go check out her biography i don't know what channel it's on or what streaming Definitely. service it's on uh but go check that out but uh you know she 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 got away from that uh and just became huge um and uh yeah she passed away i think she was in her was she in her 80s or 90s i can't recall but uh she had lived a good life someone at the office last week says uh oh, i'm so sad i'm not going to be able to hear her. i guess listen she's you'll be able to hear her music from now until the end like she, just her music is out there and just great music so even though over the years uh, a lot of our musical heroes and people that uh, whose music we enjoy will pass away the music still lives and we can always enjoy uh listening to some great tunes that was the great Absolutely. tina turner lol cream was the producer of the video of simply the best okay wow. the one with the horse yes yes lol produced that on his own Okay. Does he know who Lol is? She know Lol is Godly Cream. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I want to talk about uh, Greg knows everywhere, but yeah, no, I mean that's I did not realize that. That's no, I didn't either until we looked it up. It oh really? Weird. Yeah, because I never knew that Lol. I knew Lol did some adverts on his own, but I didn't know he actually did videos of stars on his own. But apparently he did. Okay. Anyhow. I've listened to some of your shows. You talk very quickly, so I'll try and be as quick as I can. We're, we'll, we'll slow. Oh, my goodness. We'll, are you sure you didn't listen to it on, like, 1.2 or 1.5? <laughs> no, I, I was – of all the interviews thing? I've heard, interviewers I've heard, I thought, oh, bloody hell, this lot are going really 100 miles an hour. And I like to slow it down, so I don't have to think what I'm going to say. <laughs> Well, listen, well, Harvey, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna slow it down for you. Okay, <laughs> cool. We're gonna slow it down. It might be, Greg. It might be you and I live in the in a big city, and Harvey's coming from, you know, from from England. Are you in England or are you in California right now? Where are you? I'm in Rancho Mirage, which is about ten miles from Palm Springs, yeah. California. You're, you're chilling out there in the West Coast. I was hardly chilling. It's it it in the nineties, anyhow. <laughs> nice. There's no need for you to rush anymore. You're just relaxing now, enjoying life. Yeah, I don't even have a tie on, but neither do you. 
<laughs> Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hi, this is Harvey Lisberg, um, author of a book called I'm Into Something Good. And uh, I'm speaking to a program called Welcome to the Music. Welcome, 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 Harvey. It is a, it is an honor and a privilege uh, to have you on our show. I'm uh, I'm I'm super excited to ask you a whole bunch of questions. But the first one that I'd like to start with, you, as I understand, you started your career as an accountant. You've been mm-hmm. involved in football or soccer, as we say over here in, in North America. Um, you've been involved in snooker and I believe other sports. Uh, how, or maybe the question would be, why would you get involved in the music business? Basically, because I'm musical. Okay. My father was a first violinist at Manchester Grammar School, and then in the army, was in an army band. And uh, I learned to play the piano when I was about eight, and then the guitar when I was about 15. And so I really enjoyed music. And then the house was inundated with music, opera, an opera that was coming out of my ears. And uh, I didn't like classical music at the time, but I grew to like it. And I like all music, I just love it. Hmm. Nice. Uh, when you first came on, you noticed uh, the Tina Turner uh, album over over my shoulder. I noticed um, the legs. Jesse, I'm <laughs> telling you. Wait, let's see the other, the other side of the... Uh... Oh my God. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, like... It, it, I didn't want to say anything, but I heard a Beyonce quote. Uh, I think that Tina Turner was getting an award in America somewhere, and Beyonce was um, uh, was performing and and speaking to her, and she talked about her energy, her enthusiasm, her voice, her courage, and those beautiful legs. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, Harvey. Um, you know, Tina Turner famously left America, uh, found, uh, found a home for herself and for her music uh, in Europe. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, your, your thoughts on Tina Turner, uh, her legacy, why you feel Europe embraced her well before America did? Well, she was... So it's a very hard question to answer that because obviously she had the original hit with Ike and Tina Turner, massive hits in England. And I think English fans, they liked um, black girl groups, actually. They were very popular in England. She was, And she had a terrific vitality. I mean, she just had the movement. Her movements were fantastic. I mean, even whatever age she was, she surpassed anybody else. She was just very magical. And she had wonderful records. There were great songs. You know, without the songs, she wouldn't have been anything. They were great. I mean, simply the best. Just a classic number. Nut Push, City Limits. I mean, all these were massive hits in England. 
So yeah. I see no reason. I don't know why the Americans might have gone off her, but England was always pro Tina Turner. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we were we were talking about it on the pre-show about um Private Dancer and that Mark Knopfler yeah. had wrote it and and it 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 on the pre-show we talked about it reminds me a lot of of your story and and you know what we've learned through you know the book and and research and that I mean you 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 seem to have a uh, seem to have a knack for finding songwriters and hits like I think of the Sadaka story that you shared like like yeah. you know what what do you think about and I know you mentioned that you just love music is it just love of music or is there something more to it in your ability to find those gems. I lived in an era when there were so many of them around. When we went to the office in the 60s, we were getting demos that were every day. It was either Goffin King or William, or it was The Fortunes or um, Wider Share of Pale or every minute you were hearing these, you know, A -level, the, uh, the records, the A-label records. We used to get them in and there were so many hits so without you, Nielsen. Just millions of wonderful, wonderful songs. I don't think you get that today so much. I was discussing it with my son earlier, and we were saying that the celebrity is so important now. In the 60s, mm. the song was so important. Mm. Whatever you had, you, you wanted a break, you needed that hit song virtually. I'm not talking about the people with massive followings or the grassroots that followed the Pink Floyds and everything else, but initially in the 60s, it was hit after hit, and everybody followed the charts. So um, uh, my ability to find songs, I don't think it was just songs. I had a knack of being able to see what was going to happen for some reason down the line. And I'd have been rejected and kicked into touch way before anything happened. My first footballer was in 1960. Yeah. I went to Manchester United. I had another footballer who was an England under-21 forward, Gary Owen. And he wanted to move to Manchester United. And I phoned at Manchester United and they said, we don't speak to managers. We're not talking to you. Although that's nice. You've got 75,000 people paying whatever you're paying. You're screwing the footballers and you won't speak to me. But fortunately for them, or unfortunately, the tables have reversed. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting you say that too, because you talk about they wouldn't talk to managers. Um, you, you said you'd, you'd have all this music coming to you. Uh, you know, whether it's released or I'm sure, you know, tapes and, and or not tapes, but, you know, people yeah. teaching you music. Um, was it was it a question that I have as a, as a former musician in the 80s and 90s? Was it different then than it was sort of when I was a musician and for sure now in terms of like you can't go, you can't submit a demo without representation, right? You can't get arrested today. It's a different world today, entirely. Yeah. I mean, people were actually, Artists were looking for, for singles. They weren't writing them themselves. Musicians, you know, the writers had a great time, really, because they could send one to Tom Jones, one to Man from Man, one to the Yardbirds to hear that. Now, they know today, who are they going to send it to? They'll send it to Beyonce. It'll be rejected before it gets through the door. There's no way. I mean, all they want to know now is, has it got a million streams? And then the brilliant record company, with its infinite wisdom, will take a risk. <laughs> yeah after it's popular yeah um so the story goes you hear the beatles and you figure i can do that 
uh, or not not that you could write the song, but you know, I can I can be the the brains or the business. Um, the Beatles revolutionized my life. Mm -hmm. I was an accountant, as I say. I was peddling songs that I wrote that were probably mediocre, mm -hmm. and uh, that's being complimentary. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't get arrested, so I decided to get my own group. Then the Beatles happened, and um, okay. everything changed because the Beatles revolutionized the English music scene. We no longer had to listen to crooners with American accents, mm. boring us to tears with Moon in June. We now had an English band with humor, with brains and originality. And it caught on like a house on fire. And it just snowballed from there, from the then to the Rolling Stones and so on, so forth. And there was just a massive wall of sound. And then we had all the fashion change and all the young people didn't have to wait for solicitors to, or attorneys, as you call them, to die before they got the job. You know, young people took over the whole place. And it was just lucky to have lived in that time. And that's what I want to get over by the book. It's not mm -hmm. just music. It's not football. It's, it's a feeling of euphoria at that time. You couldn't believe it unless you lived through it. Yeah. Do, do you, you know, you, you and your son talked about, uh, you know, it, it's not the music anymore. It's, it's, it's the image. Um, do you Machinery. Talk, yeah. Do you talk about the time even, like that, that energy and the youth? Do you talk about that there'll never be a, I don't know if you would call it, if you want to call it the British invasion or not, but there'll never be a time where music is just everything. I'm not sure with artificial intelligence what the hell's going to huh. happen. Because <laughs> that's the next thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're going to be inundated with voices from all past or wherever it is, and they're all going to be put to you. And you're going to see shows where the images are all going to be created, not the real people. It's going to be a whole kaleidoscope that's going to go on in front of you. And, and actually, the Beatles kind of started it with that show Love in Las Vegas. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah. No, but that was that sort huh. of going that direction. I think that's where the future of the music is. And promoters today are promoting shows, naming it the Elvis show. Yeah, okay, it's Elvis's image, modified. It's Elvis's music, but it isn't Elvis, but there it is. And the yeah. public are, and maybe that's because with music, um, good music lasts, and then it, the music becomes important. Sort of Gilbert and Sullivan is played like 150 years after it's been done. Beethoven, sure. Mozart, you know. So maybe if it's good enough, the Beatles' music will definitely be heard in 100 years' time. Yeah. <laughs> Whether the music of today will, I'm not as convinced. I don't know. It, it, it's it's funny because again on the pre-show we were talking about you know rock music specifically and again we talked about hip-hop and that but you know we were talking about that with rock music you know my kids who are in their their late 20s you know really good rock music has carried on through the years i mean nirvana's yeah. nevermind is as not as relevant but is relevant today like it was 33 years ago and so there's yeah. this you know body of music that's happened over the last 50 years that's shared among generations now that we didn't yeah. necessarily have before. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Um, when you, when, you know, talk about songwriting, you, you hired or you brought on board Graham Goldman uh, as a songwriter. 
Um, well, I actually always liked Graham Gorman. Okay. Um, he lived near me, and he was in a band called The Whirlwinds, which were very popular. Kind of an Irish-Jewish show band that played bar mitzvahs and weddings and played all the current hits of the day. And they revolutionised their kind of music because the band leaders before would be playing waltzes and foxtrots and God knows what. Here was a young band. And I always liked Graham. He's very, very, very good, very good guitarist. Uh, they had an awful manager who was as arrogant as Manchester United were to me. <laughs> and, um, and that might be because he thought I was Alan Klein, but I don't know. I wasn't in the music business. <laughs> I was just an accountant. I couldn't have been much of a threat. Um, so anyhow, once Herman's Hermit started, they got some success. I approached Graham. I said, look, why didn't your band come with me? I'll try and do what I can do. He did do. And then I said, well, why do you pack in your job? He was selling shirts and some retail outlets. And I said, I'll put you on a wage, which is about five pounds a week, uh, which wasn't great to keep the walls at bay. But as I say to people today, there were no mortgages, no children, no three Ferraris in the garage. So you didn't need that much anyhow. So and he was very happy living at home with his parents. His father was a phenomenal playwright, amateur, with little success, but very talented, and helped him with the lyrics and did a lot of the early lyrics for his father. So it was an interesting team, father and son. Wow. wow. That's fascinating. And classics like For Your Love by the Young. Yeah, well, exactly. For Your Love would not, the lyric would not be written by a 17-year-old boy. It was written by a 45-year-old playwright who's a bit of a genius. I'd give the moon, if it were mine to give, I'd give the stars and the sun for mine to live, to thrill you with delight, uh, something every night. There'll be days that we'd excite, make you think of me at night for your love. Well, that is not the, That's that is not the lyric of a 15-year-old boy. I'm sorry. <laughs> No. Wow. Can can you share the the story about like that the road that that song took to yes, actually I make was, it? I uh, was managing uh, Graham, and House of the Rising Sun was a colossal hit, which we loved. And everybody that played the guitar played those four chords. <laughs> and I said to Graham, "Hey, why don't you write a song on those chords?" And Graham surreptitiously changed the last chord minimally, minimally. And he started doing that part of the song. And then in the middle, I suggested, I was very integral in that song. Why don't you change the beat in the middle? Let's try something else. And we did. And then you got in the middle, like the rock part, the, you know, and then we got the whole song. And that's the right, it's a number one. I, I mean, what do I know? It's a number one. I don't care who does it. Let's take it to the Beatles. Then we know it's going to be a number one. <laughs> and Graham looked at me as I was bloody mad. And... Um, well, I was. To be in my business, I had to, you know, once you go to the music business, you have to be a little bit crazy. So anyhow, um, I decided to go and see the Beatles. I went with Graham and uh, we had a demo of the record and I was going to get it to them at the interval. The opening act was the Yardbirds and then the Beatles came on and you didn't hear anything. All you heard was good screaming. It was like, you know, deafening screams of 16-year-old girls. You didn't hear any music, really. And uh, the, before the interval, I, I looked around behind me. There was a publisher that published our material called Ronnie Beck. And um, I said, look, I want to get this song to the Beatles. And so, he and the, the usual smile. And he comes back after the interval. He says, do you mind if I play it to the Arthurs? I said, no effing way. <laughs> this is for the Beatles. It's number one. And anyhow, he did get it to the Arthurs. And George Ogomolsky, who was a real pioneer of rock music, 
the guy that managed the Stones originally had the Crawdaddy Club, and the Yardbirds, the Rolling Stones were the house band and the Crawdaddy, or whatever it was called, that club. And subsequently, the Yardbirds became the house band. And he got it to the Yardbirds, and they did it. Eric Clapton blew his fuse. He couldn't stand it. He wanted to be a blues band and not a rocker and not a pop band. He left the band. So that song has got a very coloured... Very coloured mm -hmm. start, to say the least. Um, but I still think the Beatles would have had a number one with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Har Harvey, let me let me ask you this: like today, if if that happened today, you would be credited as a songwriter. On yeah. That. Um, yeah. Graham's I'm father sorry. would be credited as a songwriter on that. Graham's but, father? No, Graham's father was. It was intentional. Well, both in both cases, the names were kept off because I was managing the act and I didn't think it was right okay. for me to take any credit for it, even though musically I might have been involved. I was trying to promote Graham as a songwriter. I wasn't interested in me as a songwriter. I was always in the background. That's why I'm doing all these interviews every day and night because nobody knows me from Adam. I kept, I was not Robert Stigwood that was going around doing outlandish things or doing whatever Peter Grant did or whatever anybody else did, or Colonel, all these people that were really right in there. I was, I was like the puppeteer from the background. Hmm. So it was a different story. Uh, I don't know if that answered that question. I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What is, what is your, like, do you, I'll forget. I don't want, don't want to think, you know, regrets or anything. I wanted to ask no, you this. No, I've got lots of regrets, but well, not is there is there a band? Is there a band or is there a song that a song that got away or, or right. a band that got away? Well, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber got away. That's a small couple. Wait, they got away? <laughs> Wait, I thought you got them. So I the gave story. them a management development contract okay. and didn't and didn't develop go into the management contract. So when I say they got away, I let I that was a regret. I let them get away. It was a regret that I didn't publish Joseph and the Dreamcoat 30 years before it happened. You know, it was a regret. But, you know, I was very green at the time. You know, I was probably 24. I knew nothing about anything. And I was waiting for the Allen clans to tear me to pieces. Managed to resist. Wow. Wow. So, so how does that story begin? Like, were you friends with Tim or Andrew? Tim and Andrew sent me a, a said, can I come and see you? I said, yeah, sure, come up. They were two young kids, long hair, kind of hippie, uh, you know, wow. student types, university 20-year-old type of thing, very well spoken, very nice. We've got this song, I Fancy You, or something like that. I want to get it to Herman Sermitz. Would you do it? Sure. I sent it to Mickey Mouse, who rejected it. It subsequently was a number one for Jason Donovan from the, from the show. I know you're smiling. <laughs> it happens all the time, you know. You just take it with yeah. a pinch of salt. And then after that, I said, have you got anything else? I said, oh, yeah. We've got a, an album. We've just done a show at a church hall called Joseph and the June Coat. And my, I started salivating. I thought, yes, that's a great idea. The evangelicals in America, they're going to burn this up. We'll do it. Got the album, sent it to 16 different record companies, got through to the heads of all the companies because I didn't need to go through the secretary's fourth boyfriend to get it heard. They answered the phone, they saw me. Every one of them turned it down. 10CC, who weren't 10CC then, but all the members of 10CC, 
and everybody else that I was involved with, what are you messing around with that? What are you messing around with that? So this kind of answers an earlier question of yours. What something inside me said, there's something there. Anyhow, so I said, look, come on a management development contract with me. And we gave them five pounds each a week again. It's, you know, keep the wolves at bay. Yeah. And then after two years, nothing had happened. Everything was wrong. They said, well, we've got another right. And the, the contract was just ready for kind of renewal. They, they, obviously, they would have got more money. And they said, we're doing this thing called Jesus Christ Superstar. And I thought, oh, no. Uh, I'm a Jewish boy from North Manchester. <laughs> and I don't think the community in 1967 or whenever it was. Okay. Uh, no, you'd have to rub it in. Uh, I've seen it, believe it or not, I've seen that before. So anyhow, we're just going to do this and we're doing a concept album. And so it, it was a bit like I passed. Okay, well, that was the end of that. So that's a kind of regret. Wow. The I, other I, regret. I, go ahead, go ahead. One other regret, which isn't musical, was Graham and I were going to purchase a series of 24 Hockney paintings, which were 30, 48 by 30 inches, called the Blue Guitar Series, for £24,000. Wow. Which presume would be worth about 30 million today or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And probably yeah. hanging in some harem somewhere. Oh my goodness. That's in the crazy. Middle East. That's crazy. Oh you taught you 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 brought up Mickey Most. I, I want to sort of explore, you know, your relationship with Mickey and and what was that like over the years? If you don't mind sharing. It was the it was the it was a good relationship. I mean, I accepted the fact to rejected all the wonderful material I sent him, <laughs> like for your love, like Buster, which I thought would be perfect for Herman Sermits, like many other things until finally he came round. But I admired his ability to he in particular to find a hit and from different genres. He went from House of the Rising Sun, the Nashville Teens. Um, then it, we did Dandy, which was the Kinks, Donovan, you know, Jeff. But I mean, he just, he picked songs and then going back to Sam Cooke, Wonderful World, the Silhouettes from the Rays, you know, he could, he had the ears. Hmm. Apparently, and I didn't know this, but Keith Hotwood from Herman Sermits told me only recently that he was massive in South Africa before he came to England. A massive star. So he probably knew, knew all these 60s songs and they're probably 50 songs and they're probably infiltrated. As a person, he was an egomaniac. That was okay. I, I could handle it because Climb was a bigger egomaniac. I mean, there was there's, there's limits. There's some, some are in the stratosphere and then the others are just about on earth. He had a very healthy ego. Had the biggest house in England, probably. £20 million it was at the time. And he had a Rolls Royce and he had a yacht in town. So he, he lived the high life. But he had a nice side. I mean, he in the studio, he had a long conversation with my wife, Carol. He said, you've got to stop smoking. And he, he was like really, really like a fatherly figure telling him, you must really, I mean, it's nothing to do with music or anything, but he had that side to him that was very nice. And he, it was a kind of weird. And the other side was the real hard, the other thing that I regret about Mickey was he didn't allow the musical development of Herman's Hermits. They were very good musicians. They could play, and they weren't allowed to write songs. They weren't encouraged to play songs. If they did songs, they were never even considered. It was a shame, because I think if they'd have been 
helped along. They might have come up with something really useful, and they did write some nice songs, but nothing ever reached anywhere. Oh, interesting. Hmm. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, you know, we uh, Greg, Greg and I interviewed. There, there's a, a a massive music station um, that that was in Canada back in the Greg. What was it? Nineties. Um, called Much Music, uh, similar to what Americans think of as as MTV. Right. Um, and there, you know, we 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 spoke with uh, with uh, with the director of of this uh, documentary. Uh, about this uh, this time in history that you know people of Greg in, in my age it was very influential in terms of the the music we listened to um, just just amazing and and just the the, the people and the, the stars and the bands that came through uh, that channel and I, I was curious as I was reading about Herman's Hermits um, you know they did movies uh, the Beatles did movies um why you know I, i'm not sure whether video song videos was a thing back then maybe it was maybe the movies were the vehicle for the songs why was that such an important uh aspect for bands at that period of time money simple as that well, it's an easy answer, but yeah, yeah. Um, and because and everything was controlled by the record companies. Obviously, they invested the money in the films. Hard Day's Night. Okay. It wasn't a it wasn't a great movie. They didn't use the the top of the top, which they could have done. Sinatra had the brains. He went in from here to eternity, and got the Oscar. You know, he because he did a real part. Presley was a puppet, always you know with beautiful girls and and a chick movie. Why? Why not put him in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or, yeah. or really give him a part that would mean something? So all the music things were, they were like, they were like, I don't know, they were like, what's it like? Um, what you call the pop bands that had no kind of meaning or depth. They were kind of shallow, you know, and that, th those were the films that were churned out by people. But I must tell you the story. I mean, I was, um, in, we had an office over a Chinese restaurant. It stank. Of Chinese food, and um, the aroma came through. And I went in on a Monday morning. My office is about twelve feet square, and in the corridor, there's two people standing there. One with a seersucker suit on, type of thing, and the other, a fat, bald-headed guy with a huge cigar. Apparently, he made Elvis Presley movies. And uh, he says, "We've come to ask you whether you'd be interested in Herman's Hermits coming to America to do a film." I said, "Well, it's impossible. We're doing. Um, we've got the date sheets completely full." We only need them for two days. I said, no, it's really not. He says, we'll give you $45,000 for two days. We'll fly you in first class. We'll give you anything you want. And I'm thinking, God, what does this guy think of? As I went into the office with all these demos everywhere, you know, everywhere, smoke stained, every, a real horrible office. It wasn't like a sunset boulevard overlooking, uh, overlooking the sea. So anyhow, um, I said, no, I can't do it. He said, but look, we'll give you anything you want. Tell us what you want. So like an idiot, I said, all right, we'll have a Cadillac. You got it, right? So that was it. We got $45,000 Cadillac, which we split between every member of the band, drove it for four months, and then it ended up with me. And I had this Cadillac, which just about fitted in the drive, but an inch on either side. And that was, 
And this Sam Katzman, he did Elvis movies. He did Elvis Presley films. And there you go, where the boys meet the girls. And it was one with Connie Francis, I think. And then we did ours. And incidentally, in that, to, in that time, we had to provide music. So I said, well, Graham's got a song. Can we use that? And they did Listen People. It's got to number two in America. Huh. Nothing to do with Nicky. <laughs> Just a plug there. Just a plug. <laughs> a negative plug, but it was, it didn't matter. It all helped. I mean, Herman's Hermits was such a phenomenon at the time. Yeah. We outsold the Beatles one month. How do you do that? Mrs. Brown outs for four weeks number one over help. You know, I don't think the Beatles or Rolling Stones could quite cope with it, but. You know, <laughs> at least John Lennon and Paul always looked after Peter Noon Herman. When he was very oh. young, to go to America, I had to go to Bow Street Magistrates Court in loco parentis instead of, a, instead of a parent to be with him. And he told me he used to go around the clubs and John and Paul used to switch uh, vodka tonics for lemonade when he was 15 or 16. So. He was that young. <laughs> Yeah, that, that well, that was before, but he, he was a star. He's he'd always he'd been on Coronation Street initially when he was about oh, okay. 13, and he was kind of you know one of the he was one of the he had a great face, beautifully dressed. He was the man of the year award for dress in I think 1967, best dressed man in, in England. So, you know, he had a lot going for him. Wow, um, I, I loved reminiscing. <laughs> uh, about the songs uh, I'm Not In Love, The Things We Do For Love. Uh, right. Um, Which one do you want to talk about? <laughs> right. Both, both the band and, and, okay, and, and well, your, your time with NCC. Do... I'm, just, I'm just geeking out over this next topic. So. Well, that, the people often ask me, what was it like when you, did you know that I'm into, I'm into something? No, I'm sorry. I'm Not In Love was um, a hit. And I said, yes, after about 15 seconds, because we heard it unmixed in the studio. Okay. So we just sat there, and then this wall of voices was coming around us, and this constant beat, and it was hypnotic. And whereas others, well, it was in, in the category of For Your Love, but even more so, it just had the atmosphere. You knew this was going to be a monumental song. Worried a bit about the length, because it was pretty long. But um, that was that. And then when it came out, we had all the pantomime of whether you can have a long single. Of course, there was MacArthur Park before it. No, there was always a problem. The record companies always, and the, and the radio stations, always found a way of screwing it up for us. They didn't play Rubber Bullets because of the lyric, one of the lyrics, and that made it number one. Oh. It was banned from the BBC to start with, and that, of course, made it immediate hit, number one. I mean, that was the end of that, so they had to play it. <laughs> you know. I mean, uh, my uh, attitude is that all these people are in their employed record companies at the time were employed and they had maybe 500 acts. But as long as you've got the Beatles, you're OK. <laughs> you know? We've got our jobs for a year. They're all marked. Don't worry about it. You don't need any talent. <laughs> <laughs> very very like a very eclectic band i mean you know the pop hits yes yeah but uh very experimental very eclectic how do you how do you balance that did you want to balance that did you just let them do what they wanted and how do you take a band like that and no no i don't accept responsibility for that 
I had all the hits with, um, <laughs> with all the initial hits with Herman's Hermits and then Tony Christie, who I managed, and all the stories attached to that. And we had lots of hits. And I wanted to get a band that wrote its own music. Okay. I already managed Kevin Law from day one, 1964. Mm -hmm. I was representing Kevin Law. They wrote beautiful songs and did lots of avant-garde things. They were art students. They were very, very very artistic, very talented. But of course, as far as songs are concerned, nothing happened. Eric Stewart was a brilliant, good-looking guitarist with Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders and Split, became the Mindbenders, groovy kind of love, worldwide number one. He joined them with Graham to be the Mindbenders. Mind they put a track called Schoolgirl out, which was quite good, it didn't happen. And then they bought the studio, Strawberry Studio, formed the studio, there was a lot of downtime that they acted, the four of them acted as session musicians, whatever was going in there. So if somebody wanted a girl singer, they would go and do the backing or they'd do records on their own, put them out in the false names and everything failed. Of course, everything always does fail. And then we had the breaks. We had an act called Ramesses, which was um, uh, a couple, the guy thought he was in the reincarnation of Ramesses III, an Egyptian god, oh. came into my flat in London while I was having a weekend away with my girlfriend, future wife, and appeared at the door in togas and said, somebody in New York has told me that you'll be very good for us. Can you, can you listen to this? And I got a deal for them with the record company that weekend. And then the members of 10CC all did the music. So it's called Space Hymns. It was a really good album. And then the thing happened with Sadaka because I knew uh, Donny Kirshner. Lots of stories with him where I have memories of going to his house and he brought um, Neil Diamond down from the uh, upstairs. He said, he's got this song to play. And Neil Diamond was unknown. He said, I've got this song with you. Like, tell me what you think with your ears. He had some respect for me. So anyway, it was I'm a Believer. And he just played it on the guitar. And there's about, we've got another writer upstairs, Carol Bersega. She comes in and does a song. So I was very friendly with Donny Kirshner. When I got to New York, I was a big fan of Neil Sedaka in my teens. That was pre-everything, pre-accountancy even. So any, <laughs> I was at college or school or whatever. I said, what happened to Neil Sedaka? I said, oh, he's upstairs. And I'm with my wife and I looked at her. I said, oh, and he said, do you want to see him? I said, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. We go up to this little room, which is 10 feet by six feet, with and there's so Neil there. And Donny said, play some songs for Harvey. See, and I'm looking for a song for Tony Christie, because he's like a Tom Jones. I said, I want a song for a Tom Jones-like singer. I told Donny exactly what I wanted. They played four songs, which were very mediocre, and then they played Amarillo. So that's it. I want that. Will you send it to me? Please send the demo. Nothing happened. I went back to England and it was just, Carol kept saying, phone up, Danny, get this, get that song, get that song. Well, it finally came after three months. I went to London, it was recorded the next day and it got to 18 in the charts. And 30 years later, it was number one, biggest record of the year in England in 2004. Mm -hmm. uh, Sadaka now realized, oh, well, this guy's got something. Let's go and do three tracks at Strawberry came and did two albums, after which all your American hits came, Love Will Keep Us Together, and all those things, Solitaire, all those were out of that album. And he said to the boys, well, why don't you form your own band? You've, you've done it with me, why don't you do it? So in a way, it sort of evolved into 10CC from there. In the meantime, there was a track called The Anifold Man, which was the three of them did. 
that was really when we were experimenting with sound in the studio. But after Sadako, that really took its, its shape, and that's how 10CC started. And, and yeah, I, so. if, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, the Anthropal Man was, you started saying your mission was experimenting with sound. It was, it wasn't necessarily, not that it wasn't meant to be a song, but can you talk a bit about that? Because that's a fascinating. Yes, I, I can. It's just, a, <laughs> um, I, I got hold of this song. It was, they played me this demo when they'd finished it. They were messing around the studio. They were trying to test sounds out. And I said, that's a hit. That's unbelievable. What, what's that? You know, and I don't even know if the voices were on at that stage. But anyhow, I said, that's very unusual. And um, that, that nobody believed it was going to be a hit. But Dick Leedy came up to the studio and they played him. And they, he said, well, I'll give you 500 quid for that or something like that. And they all went ahead with it. And it was a number one. And the DJ, what's his name? Um, one of the DJs, a very big DJ in England, said, "You can put it on my graveyard if it's if it goes to number one." <laughs> <And> it, <laughs> wow! Oh, it's a hit, yeah. Oh, it was, it was Kenny Everett, that's right. So he he had kind of egg on his face. That was that. And then going to things we do for love. That was after the group had split and all oh. the hassles and the thing. And the first thing they did was the things we do for love, which. There was some very weird stories about that, which I'd rather not tell, because it's not. I, all I'm trying to say is I don't think Kevin was very impressed with it, put it that way. And it actually sold as many as I'm Not In Love in America. It did very well there. Yeah. Bet Midler was very keen on it. She loved it. Uh -huh. Wow. I remember um, I, one, of, one of my keyboards, one of my synths was, uh, not when I say early, early sampler, not Fairlight early sampler, but you know, on Sonic that a kid in Whitby could buy, you know, as a musician and whatever, have 17, yeah. 18 years old or whatever. But I bought the Onsonic and it came with the floppy discs. And one of the floppies was the airiness of Not in Love. And it was just like, you just, you know, press it and away it goes. And I, I, I thought that was fascinating to hear, again, you know, just getting this technology. We did so much more with it, obviously, but just to, to be able to sort of play that sample not necessarily using any song, but it was just—I don't know—it was just—it was just amazing. I don't know would, would that have would that have been licensed to Onsonic for that because it was it was distributed with the with the board at the time. I remember it could well have been. I can't answer the question because I don't. Yeah. Know. No. No. Anyway, sorry. I just, I just <laughs> going on. No, it's I got okay. I got goosebumps going down memory lane here. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, were you involved when Godly and Cream, or I always thought it was Creme, but I guess Godly and Cream. Um, uh, as a kid, I always just thought that. Sorry, I digress. Uh, were you involved? Like, I mean, they, you know, think of, we talked about earlier about the, the video for Tina Turner. I mean, the two of them did like Duran Duran. Yes, Frankie goes to Hollywood, the police. Were you involved with them at that point when they were making the videos? I was involved with them, not in the videos. No, I, I was looking after Graham and Eric in 10CC. But I, when they left, it was very amicable because they said, well, look, we wanted to go into video production. We want to go with this guy called John Gayden who had a video company was involved in it. And I said, fine, but I want to retain the publishing of your material. Mm -hmm. So I, I retained the publishing and the relationship to this day as well. Um, and we had lots of hits. And no, they, did, they then went out to America and they did all the videos. And the, the most amazing video for me was the Cry video, which again, I published Cry, but the, they did the video. 
which Michael Jackson ripped off with the morphing and everything. And it's a shame, really, they didn't really get as much credit as they should have done for that video. I mean, it was a good video, but it was an astonishing video, you know, for pioneering video. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think it did, like, I, I, I don't know... Obviously, not total. Sales. It got recognized. It got recognized. Yes. Yeah, it, and yeah. in Canada, in Canada, when we talk about much music, I mean, it was a big staple of much music then, and like it was, you know, it, it, it you know, it, I don't know. I was, I was blown away by it. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, and and so I, I just want to ask you one last question, or if not question, but if you could share one story, and that is um, the story of meeting Elvis. <laughs> right. Um, we'd done a massive tour of America and finished off in Hawaii, where I was very friendly with a DJ called Tom Moffat on Kapoi in, um, in Honolulu. Um, and we got to the hotel and there was a telegram saying the Colonel and Elvis would like to meet you at the Polynesian village. We're shooting a film. Would you like to come over? And I could never understand, when I see the photographs of that day, why it was just myself, Peter Noon and Barry Whitram, and two other members of the band, or three, weren't there. I couldn't, and I only, as a result of this book, I spoke to one of the boys, and he said, well, we, kept, we got different messages to say that they're changing the time and they're changing the day. And we got fed up. We were tired. We went home, because we'd had enough of this tour. So it was just the three of us. We went to the village. And then um, the colonel meets me and he says, oh, a fat, a fat Jewish, a fat Brian Epstein. I thought, wonderful. That's a great start. <laughs> I began to We went into the hut and Elvis Presley got no shoes on, or maybe had flip-flops, white trousers, bare midriffer, real cream hair, and six henchmen all dressed the same. If he smiled, they smiled. This was the king. And everything he did, they had mimicked. So the, the colonel, when they went in the car, there was a procession behind us, four Cadillacs with the king in the middle. It was all this, and it was just, it was just a phenomenal time. It's just, I could just remember it as though it was yesterday. And that's the sort of thing you do remember very distinctly. And Presley was very nice, very, you know, very clean cut, very friendly and sweet in a way. I don't ever knew who we were, but... I didn't question that. Got back to England and all the people were trying to get TVs on us. You've seen Elvis, because Elvis was like never seen by anybody in England in person. It was a big deal. That's amazing. Harvey, thank you so oh. much for your That's, time. This this has stories. been a blast. Thank you so much for writing the book. Um, amazing. Well, my, I must say, I must interrupt there, Charlie Thomas was the biographer. I've got to give him a credit. He did a really nice job on it. Okay. Uh, he, he wrote it. And, you know, I, I just gave the stories. He re actually wrote it down. He just, you know, everybody's saying I wrote it. Yeah, well, and give him some credit as well. Sounds, and the book is called <laughs> I'm Into Something Good. Yeah. My Life Managing 10cc, Herman's Hermits, and many more. Um, ah, I, I love books like these. And thank you so much, Harvey. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for for the memories and and for this conversation. Yeah, it was great. I enjoyed talking to both of you. And the picture of the album that you switched around. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put this one back up. We're gonna put Tina Turner back. <laughs> Tina Turner back up. <laughs>
Oh, don't poke the bear, Kareem. Don't poke the bear. No. You know, it reminds me of Rod Stewart, hot legs, you know. Yeah. I, I, was, I was actually looking. I thought I had the Joseph album. And the only reason, and we'll end it off here, the only reason I would have had that album was back in high school. Uh, my uh-huh. sister was in a school choir. And right. Joseph came to Toronto. Donnie Osmond played Joseph. Right. And she, uh, her, the choir in her school was one of the choirs that sang. I think there was might have been two or three that sang on stage uh, for his run uh, in Toronto, which was I think back back in the day. I think that was the first time Joseph came uh, to Toronto. And and the story goes, we actually had a family reunion. So family from from England, from all across Canada. We had come that summer. We wait backstage. We all go to the show. We're waiting backstage. My sister comes out. We're waiting for Donnie Osmond. Bunch of people waiting for Donnie to get autographs. My dad gives Donnie the camera. Says, Can you take a picture of us? So that was that's my memory of, of Joseph uh, and the amazing. See, I got Joseph on the album and Tim Rice was Spotify ah, on the album. Wow. But we got the original. Wow. Thanks so much for the stories, Harvey. Okay. Yeah. It's very nice talking to you. Cheers, Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.